how did language evolve and how on earth is it linked to female orgasms? That's what Gordon Gallup and I discuss in this actually private conversation that we recorded a while back, uh, but I decided to share most of it here with you today. Now, who is Gordon Gallup? Well, he's an evolutionary psychologist. He's probably most well known to be the inventor of the self-awareness, self-recognition mirror test that is used to determine whether animals and children, human children that is, are able to recognize themselves in the mirror. Please subscribe to this channel. Hit the bell icon as well. I have some pretty mind-blowing interviews coming up here, at least in my own assessment. And it's all about not just what we know about the human mind, but also how we can know things to be true. So if you're into the truth, self-discovery, this is the place for you. Just a quick thank you to the channel sponsor, Crypto.com, who produces these crypto and regular money debit cards. You can basically load them with normal money or cryptocurrencies, get a 2% cash back or even 3% on all your purchases and a free $50. And they just have two big news coming out this week. You can now use these cards to make payments with Apple, Google, and Samsung Pay. And they've also just partnered with several crypto tax providers to, yeah, to basically make tax reporting completely seamless for people who use this card with cryptocurrency. Thank you to Crypto.com. Let's dive into it. Humor. I like to think about humor as kind of an evolutionary extension of play. Most mammalian species engage as juveniles in play, physical play rough and tumble play and so on and so forth and i tend to think of humor as an extension of physical play into the intellectual domain so that humans treat humor as instances of playing with words or playing with ideas and i think that that represents in a sense a logical extension of physical play but in order to play with words and in order to play with ideas uh, you obviously have to have language so from that perspective, if we define humor as playing with words and playing with ideas, it's unique to humans. And the, right. the thing that makes humor particularly interesting, and I think I may have mentioned this in an earlier email, is that we've done some research on female orgasm, human female orgasm. And it was done from the perspective of trying to test the hypothesis that the capacity to, an ex to experience an orgasm on the part of human females may be an evolved mate choice mechanism. So that females that <clears throat> engage in courtship with a particular male and in and engage in 
heterosexual intercourse, if they experience an orgasm, that may be a, a signal or a sign of a good match. Good behavioral and good biological match between the female and the male as a prospective mate. So we did a very extensive study with a, a large number of, of human females and asked them to fill out an anonymous survey <laughs> with their permission uh, about their sexual behavior and if they were in a committed relationship about their committed sexual partner. And they were asked to fill out a lot of questions, not only about their sexual behavior, but about their committed partner as well, about features of their committed partner, physical features of their committed partner, psychological characteristics of their committed partner, and so on and so forth. And what we discovered was that females that were in a committed sexual relationship with a male, the likelihood of experiencing an orgasm, as well as how they rate the intensity of their orgasms, were positively, positively correlated with a number of fitness dimensions of their partner. And one of the most ubiquitous characteristics, one of the one of the one of the most ubiquitous psychological characteristics of their partners that predicted uh, orgasm frequency and orgasm intensity <coughs> was how they rated their partner's sense of humor. And and women that were in committed relationships with a male who had a high or good sense of humor regularly experienced not only more orgasms, but regularly experienced more intense orgasms. And I think that humor is, humor among humans, is a proxy for intelligence. And by mating with intelligent males who carry genes that code for things like intelligence and humor, this would have given their descendants, particularly their male descendants, a leg up, so to speak, when it came to competing for scarce mating opportunities in subsequent generations. Mm. Um, so that's an interesting perspective on humor, then that humor may have evolved uh, in the case of females as a as a indicator or a proxy for fitness. The other advantage of 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 being in a committed relation sexual relationship with a male who has a good sense of humor is that humor can also take the edge off of an otherwise uh, tense situation. And therefore, the male may be better at uh, 
interacting with other males and competing with other males in the intellectual domain when it comes to scarce resources, money, and so on and so forth. All right, well, we'll use that as the, as the way to open the door to language and get back to what I said, and it was a very perfunctory uh, account of the evolution of language last time, and I indicated that I thought language evolved in order to enable people to share states of mind, in order for people to share mental states. You don't need language in order to communicate emotional states of mind. Emotional states of mind can be fairly effectively communicated by nonverbal cues, uh, facial expressions and posture and so on and so forth. Uh, in fact, there's a test, uh, a very uh, widely used test called the uh, um, the mind the mind in the eyes test, and they've shown that people in that are experiencing different emotional states. If you take a picture of their face, other people can infer without knowing what their emotional state is. They can infer infer with a fairly high probability what emotion that individual is experiencing. And I think language evolved as a way to communicate informational states of mind. So you don't need, humans don't need language to communicate emotion. There are, the, emotions can be communicated in a variety of ways with nonverbal cues, but informational states of mind require language. So as an example of an informational state of mind, uh, I might uh, tell you where I found water the last time I was on a, on a, on a hunt. And I could uh, identify the, the, the space and or location of water by giving you some spatial coordinates using language. And the thing that makes language really interesting from, an, from a cognitive uh, point of view in terms of things like metacognition is that for most animals, when something is out of mind, or out of sight, I should say, it's out of mind. That is, animals have no way of representing objects or events in their absence. So when something is out of sight, it's literally out of mind. Language, however, enables humans to represent things in their absence. So we can, we can communicate about things that happened in the past, we can communicate about things that are happening now, and we can communicate about things that might happen in the future. The same thing is true for space. We can talk about things that are happening at a particular point in space, or you or I could talk about things that are happening in Arizona. So even though we're separated in space, the we're, having a, we're having a conversation that is contiguous, not only in time, but in space as well, thanks for uh, computers and the like. But we could talk about something that might be happening now in Arizona or happened yesterday in Arizona or might happen tomorrow in 
Arizona. So that means that humans, with the use of language, have achieved a way of transcending time and space. And that just opens up huge new intellectual domains. Right. I, I, I guess I was, um, as you were providing that account, I was thinking that there seems to be one exception in, in the case of animals. Someone wrote yes. a comment on, on one of our, um, uh, on our previous interview uh, saying something about uh, a pet that has dreams. This is something I've noticed in my own pets over the years. It, and of course, we can't know what's going on in the mind of the dog, but it does clearly seem, in some cases at least, that the dog is it's moving its legs, it's making little sounds. As you can almost tell that it's, it's experiencing something that is not happening right now, but maybe rather happened in the past or in some projected future in a sense you're you're in effect taking the words right out of my mouth because ah. i'm going to turn to dreams as you'll see uh, in <laughs> a moment but, but it's uh, it, it, you're 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 very you're very very perceptive that's for sure um that let me try to illustrate the advantage of language in terms of being able to transcend time time and space sure there are some philosophers of science who have argued that the single most significant scientific invention was the printing press. And the reason for that is that through printing, we can not only create a record of information that can be now stored in a relatively permanent form, but through a printing press, we can duplicate that information so it can be widely disseminated in time and space. And that is literally underwrites what most people nowadays refer to as an information explosion. So rather than having to learn everything all over from one generation to the next, one generation can now pick up, so to speak, where the last generation left off. Right. So education now enables you to jumpstart accumulated information and preserve new ideas in ways that they can be passed on to subsequent generations who now don't have to go out and through trial and error, start over from square one. And that is of course also uh, what leads to the, the saying, we can stand on the shoulders of giants. Exactly, precisely. Now, one of the most interesting things about language is that Humans, by virtue of the fact that we're one of about 196 species of primates, being primates, all humans, just like all other primates, are descendant from primitive rodent-like creatures that 
took up life in the trees, rodent-like, rat-like, mouse-like creatures in the distant past that went from a terrestrial habitat on the, on the ground and moved into the trees. And there, there, there's different speculation about why that happened, but by moving into the trees, that would make them less vulnerable to predation, and by moving into the trees, that would give them greater access to foods of high caloric intake, like fruit and so on and so forth. And life in the trees requires some very profound adaptations, not the least of which is it puts a high degree of selective pressure on the development of good visual acuity. Good visual acuity accompanied by good depth perception. So that now, as a, an emerging arboreal mammal, primates can swing through the trees. They can brachiate and swing through the trees by swinging from one limb to the other. And as you brachiate through the trees by swimming from, swinging from one limb to the other, you have to have excellent visual acuity and good depth perception because otherwise you may miss the next limb in the sequence. And if you miss the next limb in the sequence, you're in danger of falling. And if you fall out of the canopy, then you could lose the whole genetic ball of so there was a lot of selective pressure placed on the development of good visual acuity. Yet language occurs largely in the auditory or spoken domain. So we could distinguish between spoken language and gestural language. And to, and to emphasize just how important vision has been to humans. It's estimated that 90% of all of the acquired or learned information in the brain got there via the visual modality. More cortical space, the cortex being that part of the brain that is thought to be associated with cognition and intelligence, more cortical space is devoted to vision than all other modalities combined. Mm. And interestingly enough, dreams are a case in point. Dreams are primarily auditory or visual, not auditory, visual hallucinations. And there's a phenomenon called visual capture. So if somebody is given the opportunity to, to look at uh, a, a square piece of wood, like a, like a block, and feel the block at the same time, if they're then fitted with distorting lenses, that change the appearance of the block from a square into a rectangle, they immediately report 
that it feels like it changed to a rectangle as well. While the physical properties of the square block haven't been changed by using distorted glasses, if we change the image from a square to a rectangle, it overrides your experience in the tactile domain when you, when you, when you feel the block so that it now, even though it's still a square, feels like a rectangle. Right. So it just shows you how, how profound uh, the influence of language, of, of, of vision is on how we process information. So that raises the question of why language evolved in the spoken or auditory domain as opposed to the gestural or visual domain. And it turns out that uh, infants who are born congenitally blind uh, master, begin to master uh, gestural dexterity sooner than sighted infants master or begin to master speech, suggesting that there, there may be uh, ways to jumpstart gestural communication that take advantage of vision. However, it turns out that Gestural speech creates a number of handicaps, not the least of which is if you use gestures like sign, sign language, you have to be in visual contact with the person you're communicating with. Whereas with language, I can you and I could continue to have a conversation while either you or I or both of us use flintstones to fashion arrowheads and make tools. Another big difference between gestural communication and vocal communication is that we can use inflections in vocal communication to emphasize things, and we can use inflections to even carry on a private conversation. So in a, in a group of people, you and, I, you and I could whisper to one another so as to engage in a private conversation. That's not an option when it comes to gestural speech. Mm. But by far and away, the biggest advantage to Vocal communication is that it's not light dependent. As soon as the sun goes down, as soon as the sun went down in, in the evolutionary environment, it was lights out. Right. So prior to the invention of fire, which is, was very recent, then there was no way to communicate with one another. So vocal communication raises the specter of communication 24-7. And, and, and when we look at... communication was limited to the daytime. And, and just to add to that, where you're going with this, if we look at 
predators in the wild, the vast majority of at least ground predators hunt during the night. So now you've made the case that language development could have made a major leap in terms of its survival utility, I guess you can call it. But I have another question, a follow-up question. So you, you use this comparison between spoken language and sign language or something yes. akin to that. So can't we, what happens if we compare the brain of a modern homo sapiens, uh, a person, a normal functioning person, um, quote unquote, uh, against a person who grew up deaf, but has developed sign language capability. We, right. th that difference in the neural correlates must tell us something. You, you raise an interesting point that let me elaborate on. Uh, because we're so dependent upon the visual world, we use language in ways using visual metaphors to capture mental states. And you can see this in relief if you have a conversation with somebody who's deaf or uh, somebody, I'm sorry, with somebody who's blind as opposed to somebody who's deaf. Mm. And if you try to explain a difficult concept to somebody who is blind, to assess their understanding, how would you assess their understanding? What kind of a question would you pose to them? Do they, do they understand? <laughs> It's it's, good, it's very tricky, to... right? Because whatever example we could come up with, if you were if you were if you were if you were blind, and I wanted to try to assess whether you understood what I was saying about the difference between gestural communication and language, I'd probably say, "Ask her, do you see what I mean?" You obviously don't see what I mean because you can't see. You're blind. But we equate sight with understanding. Well, well, well I, I, I'm not disagreeing with that, but we can also say, listen. And then we can also something. Listen, listen. Or look, here's the thing. Listen, here's the thing. Or even in modern uh, day English, I feel you. Exactly. So exactly. we have the tactile, the visual, and the auditory. We do. Uh, sweet dreams. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I, I smell a rat. Right. Etc., <laughs> uh, etc. Et But visual metaphors, unlike metaphors in other modalities, are frequently used to capture mental states. So a good idea is characterized as what? bright idea. And somebody that's capable of generating bright ideas has good insight. Right? Right. And if if you if you wanted me to explain something in more detail, you might ask me to 
illustrate that point. So all mm -hmm. of these are visual metaphors. And the presence of these visual metaphors is a, is a byproduct of our prior arboreal adaptations. This is really interesting. Uh, just two weeks ago, something like that, I was taking some notes uh, just for myself, I guess. But but I had this, it was really just an observation. I, I noticed on, I watched some people on TV. I had a friend who who uses these. He would he, My friend, he would say, look, here's the thing. Then he would lay it out for you, like whatever it was. Then I watched... Look! Look! Uh, by the way, is an is a is a is a visual metaphor. Right, it's a visual <laughs> metaphor. But what, but the but the theory I wrote down, and this was really just a theory from my own private notes, was power language seems to be associated with vision or vision clues in the language, whereas auditory references listen. They seem. Uh, more vague and weaker. And then I asked myself, because uh, English is my second language, and I asked myself, does this translate to my first language, which, which is Danish, which is obviously not too far off. It's the same, uh, you know, the same origins, more or less. But right. I, I was surprised to find that it's actually the same people who use those metaphors in Danish as well also come across as more powerful. Now it makes sense from an evolutionary point of view. And and do and do Danish people use the Danish equivalent of yes. see as yes, they the equivalent do. of understand? Yes, they do. Exactly. We've we've looked at different languages to see if that's the case, and it holds up surprisingly well. <laughs> it's amazing, right? <laughs> yeah. So it's it's all a byproduct of uh, of our early arboreal adaptation to the arboreal world in terms of being able to swing through the trees and the importance that vision has on uh, on survival but 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 let's let's compare this to uh our closest relatives shall we <laughs> yes. um i, I would because so you mentioned humor that made me uh, it, it painted a picture in my mind of a of a quote-unquote laughing chimpanzee I've I've heard theories. I, unfortunately, I don't remember where or when, but this must be at least a decade ago. That chimpanzees do exert something that looks to the human eye as laughter. They sort of like drag their um, or show their teeth or something like that. Can you? What do we know about that? Surprisingly little, but I've seen the <laughs> same expression in in chimpanzees, mm. uh, and it and it usually accompanies playful interactions with either humans or other chimpanzees. So it may represent the, the glimmerings of emotional play, so to speak, as opposed to playing with words or playing with ideas. Right. I guess... Another question that should be asked here is, 
I, I, again, unfortunately, I don't remember the source. Um, I'm, I'm sort of reading three different books simultaneously at this moment, so I don't know which one of them referenced this. But someone mentioned that a recent study had shown that if people, if humans listened to recordings of chimpanzees um, in captivity, probably, they understood the basic emotions they tried to signal. Isn't, isn't that a very plausible or at least obvious place to start the search for the origins of language? The, the, by, by, by chimpanzees, in effect, use auditory cues. They use speech. Well, not speech. They, 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 they can modify their vocaliz vocalizations in ways that communicate different emotional states. There's no question about that, in, the, in much the same way humans do. You're making the case that language development, and we can almost imagine how this could have started. It could have started with our primitive ancestors who were stuck in the night one of them uh, suspected that there was a dangerous animal in the bushes and he could shout something as a warning to the others. To warn others. And then sure. you can modify this um, signal, whatever you want to call it, so that it indicates, so that it specifies it's not a panther, it's a bear. Or Exactly. Right. So you could, you could begin to use... Yet, as long as you and whoever you're communicating with have agreed to use different sounds to represent different objects or events, you have all of the features necessary for the emergence of language. Right. So let me ask you something. I don't know if you know the answer to this uh, question, but uh, from a neurological point of view, I, 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 where does language so you said you mentioned that language production happens in the cortex does it happen in, in the neocortex yes it does happen in the neocortex it happens okay. in in places like broca's area and in uh, the temporal lobes so if you sustain damage to the back of your head which involves your occipital lobes you may uh, become blind but if you experience damage to the temporal lobes, you may incur uh, auditory deficits. Mm. So, so gestural speech would capitalize on the cortex, and spoken language is processed by the temporal lobes, which are just above your ears, by the way. Right. And mental state attribution is lo localized right behind your forehead in the frontal lobes. Right, where, where, the, um, where the Buddhist traditions uh, refer to the third eye, right? True. And where they used to practice what's called psychosurgery through uh, prefrontal lobotomies and prefrontal lobectomies. Yeah, that's uh, which, which was a barbaric procedure. That's for sure. <laughs>
Absolutely. Even by modern standards, I mean, not only back then, but even even nowadays, it's it's used in some quarters. But. Right. Okay. Let me just return to the link. You made a link between um, female orgasm and humor and language. What was the link between that first part um, with humor well, as as a mate? quality indicator humor is is a good is a pretty good proxy for intelligence sure the ability to appreciate humor oftentimes requires a certain level of intelligence and the ability to use humor may even up the ante further so so other things being equal females that preferentially mated with humorous males left smarter descendants to make a very long story short mm. but so but but what is your theory regarding the that and how does that link in to language production or language as a phenomenon it exploits an, a, a pre-existing feature of language i mean to if if humor involves playing with words and ideas Humor didn't, didn't emerge in, in, in the sense of words and ideas until we developed language. So the distinction between physical play and mental play is one way of capturing the distinction between playing with, playing with a playmate and playing with an adult in the sense of playing with words and ideas. The other thing that's interesting in this respect, and this, this gets us back to mental state attribution, is the ability to pretend. So you could pretend to be somebody or something that you're not. And you can engage in role playing so as to further exploit this ability to express behavior physically that's generated intellectually. And, and it turns out that pretending and role-playing uh, don't emerge until after the capacity to recognize yourself in the mirror emerges. That that makes sense because how could you yeah. pretend to be someone else if you don't if you can't pretend to be yourself? <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. Okay, I, I I gotta say I was um I, I was so this theory about humor serving as a mate selection tool at least for females probably perhaps vice versa as well. That's, um, well, I think humor, humor emerged in it. Humor didn't suddenly arrive on the scene. Humor emerged with the emergence of language, but increasingly humor involves playing with words and playing with ideas. And probably much later in human evolution, people used humor <coughs> In, 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 in more sophisticated ways. And increasingly, females were selected 
during human evolution to pick mates that had psychological features that would give them a reproductive advantage in the next generation so as to maximize the likelihood that the parents' genes would be more prevalent in subsequent generations and females that mated preferentially and this is probably more true today than it may have been in the very distant past uh, but females that, that mated preferentially with males that had a good sense of humor were able to pass those intellectual genes onto their offspring thank you so much for joining my quest for self-knowledge and better understanding of the human mind and yeah, the entire world, essentially. I have some awesome interviews lined up. Can't wait to share them here. For now, thanks for listening or watching, and have a good one. Cheers.